Please take your Bibles and turn with me in the Old Testament to the book of Zephaniah. Um, Zephaniah is one of those minor prophets who is uh, near the end um, of the Old Testament. So uh, please turn to that. And we are today in chapter 3. We are looking at the ending of Zephaniah's prophecy to the people of Judah. So today we are looking at Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion, and do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The sorrows for the appointed feast I will remove from you. They are a burden and a reproach to you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame and gather those who have been scattered. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they were put to shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Let us pray. God, who has revealed himself to us in these these words of the scripture, we do ask that you would reveal yourself to us through my words today as well. As I seek to expound and to teach from these prophecies of Zephaniah, I ask that you would guide my speech and that you would use your spirit to open the eyes and the ears of those who are in this place so that they might see you and see your glory, so that they might see your goodness and be moved to joy. I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So can I let you in on a little secret? I know it's supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year, but sometimes it just doesn't feel like it, does it? I mean, giving lists to people, buying presents, that can be stressful. And none of us are supposed to admit this out loud, but the the family gatherings can sometimes bring up memories of those chairs that are empty. Those memories of grief or, or maybe memories of past hurts. The mad rush to make Christmas morning perfect is met with the disappointment of living in a world where that goal is unattainable. And I'm one of the first ones to find myself falling prey to the despair that can sometimes come surrounding all the hubbub and the busyness of Christmas. And oftentimes the reason for this is that I have forgotten. I have forgotten that we are called to rejoice and to be people full of joy. I have forgotten that God promises to restore and to lift up His people to honor and praise. And I have forgotten the truth that Christmas is a celebration of the reality that God is with us. God dwells among us. The prophet Zephaniah calls the people to remember these three things. He calls the Israelites to rejoice. He tells them 
of God's promise to exonerate this people. And he reminds them that God is with them. So Zephaniah was a prophet that served Israel between the times of Isaiah and Jeremiah. He was called to the southern kingdom to bring them a message that they were idolaters, that they had sinned against God, and that unless they repented, he would fulfill his promise to judge his people for their idolatry. He warns of the judgment on the nations for their sins and the harm that the nations will bring to the Israelites. He speaks of the great day of the Lord when God would descend upon the earth to bring judgment on the nations. But he also takes a turn and brings an unexpected word to the Israelites where he reminds them that God will judge them as well. They were the people of Israel. They were in God's promised land. They had the the temple there, which was a sign and a a symbol of God's favor upon the Israelites. God will never judge them, or so they thought. And yet Zephaniah, as many of the other prophets do, brings the word that unless they repent and turn from their sin and idolatry, God will definitely bring judgment upon them because he has told them that he was. And then Zephaniah wraps up this prophecy of judgment upon sin with a call to rejoice. It would be odd if you were listening to Zephaniah preach or reading his words for the first time. You've you've read words of of sin and, and judgment and destruction, and yet Zephaniah says, rejoice! Our passage today begins with four commands. We're told to sing, to shout aloud, to be, to be glad and to rejoice. And each of these verbs are rooted in the idea of verbal expressions of positive emotions. Judgment is coming. Be full of joy. Several of these verbs are used, a couple of these verbs, excuse me, are used in other places in the scriptures to denote general happiness and well-being, while others are used exclusively for expressions of gratitude and worship of God. The main idea is that in light of these promises that God is coming in judgment, that they are to rejoice and to be overwhelmed by something that brings them joy that they cannot contain. And we'll look at the two things that God calls them to rejoice over, even in light of impending judgment. They are to be so enraptured by the joyful news that is coming in the next part of this section. They are to be so overwhelmed by the joy of the good news that God is sending them that they they burst out in joyful praise. It's it's not something where you sit there and you quietly think, hmm, yeah, that's kind of neat. God's going to be with us. God's going to exonerate us. Huh, it's kind of happy news. No, this is a joyful, exuberant, singing, shouting of good news. It's like the the watchman that waits upon the walls and he's expecting the, the foreign invading army to overwhelm the king and yet he sees the king returning. And so he shouts with glory and with praise that that the king is coming and the king is victorious and the and the shouts and the praise lift up from the city. I was asked several years ago if it was okay to give a hearty amen when something hit that joyful nerve in our being. And, and the, abs- the, the, the answer is absolutely. Don't be like me. Don't be quiet and hold everything inside. If, 
If the preacher says something that God brings joy to your heart for, give a hearty amen. Because we are called to be people who are joyful. Amen. We are called to be people who are exuberant, who are joyful, and who resound with that joy. Many of us in this room have the weight of illness or the weight of grief or the weight of despair heavy upon us, and yet we have found peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And oftentimes we are tempted to keep that peace to ourself. Paul, even today in our passage, after dealing with conflict in the church, after dealing with pride in the people, after dealing with a lack of contentment, he says, rejoice always in the salvation that is yours. And Zephaniah, even after preaching and proclaiming judgment and destruction upon the nations and upon God's people for their idolatry, he says to rejoice. And he leads them to two things that even in the midst of that message should lead them to joy and rejoicing. The first is that God will exonerate. Verses 18 through 13, God says that he, or 18 through 20 says that he will lift up his people. He will bring them to praise and honor. And to exonerate means to relieve of a responsibility or an obligation or a hardship, or it means to clear someone from accusation or blame. We see in verse 18 of today's passage that God is going to remove the sorrows for the appointed feast from his people. That word sorrows that shows up there is used here and twice in the book of Lamentations. If you've ever read the book of Lamentations, we referenced this a couple weeks ago, but if you've read the book of Lamentations, it is heavy with despair. The author has seen the destruction of Jerusalem, has seen the, the coming judgment that Zephaniah has prophesied, and he weeps for the loss of the temple and the loss of the city of God and the loss of the ability to gather with God's worship and celebrate the feast of Passover, the feast of booths, the feast of Pentecost, where they would remember and proclaim to each other the glories that God has brought. Last year, did you mourn over the cancellation of worship? I don't mean the perceived threats to your political agenda or the the perceived power grab by the government, but did you mourn because you could not gather in this place to proclaim the joy of salvation and to fellowship with God's people? That's the sorrow that he's talking about here. And God says, I will take those sorrows away. We know from the book of Deuteronomy, God lays out his law for the people. He says, if you keep the law, you'll keep the land. If you break the law, I'll kick you out of the land. And then God wraps up with saying, you're going to break my law. You're going to get kicked out of the land, but I'm going to restore you. And so for the people who are getting ready to see the horrors of being kicked out of the land, the sorrow of losing the ability to gather and to worship, God says, I'm going to take those sorrows away from you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to put you back in the land. And for that, you should rejoice. The exoneration also carries with it the the restoration of gathering the people of God. He says twice in here, he says, I will gather those who have been scattered down to verse 20. At that time, I will gather you. I will get at that time. I will bring you home. 
whether it was the youth that had been taken to Babylon and, and trained to be good Babylonian citizens, or whether it was the people from the northern kingdom that had been taken by the Assyrians and scattered throughout the known world. The people of God had been scattered. And God said, I will bring you back together. I will gather you back together. We know from other places in Scripture that God gathers his people like a mother hen gathers her chicks for healing, for peace, for restoration, for protection. And he says, rejoice because I am going to gather you up. And he also says as part of his exoneration that he will heal their oppression. He says, I will deal with all those who oppressed you. We know if we read Psalm 137, we we feel the anger and the horrors of seeing the oppression, the destruction that the Babylonians brought upon the Israelites as they are called to sing their songs before the Babylonians and they say the horrors we have seen, we cannot sing. Whether it's the Assyrians who had scattered them throughout the known world, God promises that I will bring you back together. You know, there are times throughout the history of our church, throughout the history of the church, that the people of God through persecution, through oppression have been scattered In our own history of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, we had congregations in Scotland that had to meet in the woods or in caves with lookouts because the government was after them because they did not worship the way the government wanted. We know throughout the history of the church that persecution has scattered the people of God, and yet God promises that when our Lord and Savior returns, people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be gathered in his glorious presence to worship him forever. The stain of persecution will be removed from his people and they will be raised up in honor and glory. And those who persecuted will see that honor and glory that they tried to snuff out. God says, I will exonerate you. I will remove your shame. I will remove your sin. I will remove your sorrows and lift you up to be a people who are honored and who are glorified before the world. And for that reason, we are to rejoice. So oftentimes, this time of the year, the world around us is so focused on the materialism that they they look down upon Christians for thinking that this is a time, for knowing that this is a time to celebrate the incarnation. And yet God says, there will come a time where I will lift you up for honor and praise. And the world will know the glory of the salvation that you proclaim and that you live. So we rejoice because God will exonerate his people. But we also rejoice because God says, I am with you. Verses 15 through 17, God says through Zephaniah twice. He says, the Lord, the king of Israel is with you in verse 15. And in verse 17, he says, the Lord, your God is with you. He is mighty to save God will bring salvation to us by being with us. He will bring us a rescue that is rooted in reconciliation with God. We are rescued from God's judgment and and God with us reminds us that he is mighty to save. And this salvation will take away the punishment from God's people. It's not only the sorrows that God will remove from us because it's hard to worship in a fallen and broken world. 
but he will remove the punishment that we deserve for our sins by being God with us. We're reminded in John 1 that the word, the, the, the eternal son of God took on flesh and dwelt with dwelt among his people to bring us salvation to to become the eternal to to be the eternal son of god who is the second person of the trinity who also becomes human to live among sinful people to bear up under temptation to to suffer for the sins of those whom god had given him and through his life death and resurrection and current work of jesus god has taken away your punishment and has offered reconciliation with him And God, through Zephaniah, highlights the two benefits of this. It's the first that we've already talked about is that God's presence and salvation through that you need not fear any harm. The nations will proclaim to the people of God, do not fear. For your God is with you. It's a hint of what other prophets give us clearly that the nations will be gathered into the people of God. We need not fear any harm. Now, notice it doesn't say no harm will ever befall you ever again. It reminds us that we get God with us, reminds us that we need not fear when the harm does come. What's the worst thing that can happen to a Christian? Yeah, we end up in the glorious presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The worst earthly thing that can happen to a Christian means that we are in Christ's presence eternally. Persecution, tribulation, torture, sickness. As Paul says, to live as Christ, to die is gain. We need no longer fear the harms of this world because God is with us. And secondly, God's presence and salvation with his people will bring delight, God's delight to his people. Now, we're good reformed Christians. We know those five points of Calvinism and we know the first one is that we are totally depraved. We are completely unable to save ourselves. We know very well Isaiah 64 says the best righteousness that we can gather is like filthy, disgusting, gross, discarded medical bandages. We know that. And so we look at God and we look at our sin and we're like, yeah, I'm totally depraved. My righteousness is nothing. But look what it says here. For the people of God who have had their sorrows removed, who have had their punishment removed, God says he will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. And he himself will rejoice over you with singing. When the Holy Spirit comes upon us and applies the work of Jesus to our lives in such a way that our hearts are made new, that we are set apart as beloved, as holy, and as righteous, God the Father doesn't look at us anymore as discarded medical refuse. He looks upon us with delight. Think of the Father who desperately loves his child. Yes, he may be disappointed when that child stumbles and falls and sins. And yes, he may bring discipline upon that child when that child disobeys. But does it change the love that that father has for his child? 
No, it doesn't. And God is the perfect father. And God looks upon his children. And yes, he is grieved when we sin. Yes, he disciplines us when we sin. But he still delights in us because we are found, we are rooted in Christ and his righteousness and in his holiness. Matthew Henry puts it this way. He says, he that is grieved for the sin of sinners rejoices in the graces and services of the saints and is ready to express that joy by singing over them. Do you know, I mean, this, this, it's hard to explain how life changing this can be. We we talk about in the, in the gospels, when we read the parables of the, the, the 99 sheep and the one that strayed and, and the angels singing when a, when a, when a, a, a sinner becomes a saint. But God sings and rejoices over you also. God looks on his children in delight. He's a loving father that 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 looks at his children and he goes, that's my kid. You see my kid over there? Look at how wonderful he is or look how wonderful she is. I love him. I love her. And nothing he or she can do will ever change that truth. It's my kid. I delight in him. I delight in her. I love him. I love her. Let me sing about her. Let me sing about him. You know, we are far harsher as the children of God. We are far harsher on ourselves than God often is. You know, we borderline accuse God of being a liar. We say, you know, there's no way God loves me because I'm a sinner. Yeah, he saved me, but I'm sure he still hates me even though he saved me. May that never be, brothers and sisters. When God brings his saving presence to you, when he brings the light and life of Jesus into your life, he does, he has, and he always will delight in you. The truth is, is that this is an often overlooked reality of the incarnation. And sadly so. I think many of you would fare far better in your Christian walk if you could embrace and believe this truth. Confession and repentance would be far easier for you because you would know that you go before a God who delights rather than detests you. The work of sanctification on your part would be a smoother path because you would embrace the reality that nothing can take that love and delight away from you. And the work of proclaiming the kingdom would be embraced more because we would want others to be rejoiced over by God. We rejoice because God exonerates us and we rejoice because God is with us. It is true. It is no secret. The time prior to Christmas can be difficult. People grieve. People are sick. People have relationship and family issues. And some people wonder how they're going to provide presents and the basic necessities of life. There are a myriad 
problems and difficulties that can be magnified during this time that is supposed to be a time of celebration. But the people of God have great cause to rejoice in the middle of that struggle and strife. Jesus has secured the final defeat of sin, the final defeat of death, the final defeat of oppression. All wrongs will be righted and all wrongdoers will be punished. The children of God will be shown to the world to be blessed and highly favored. And Jesus, echoing Zephaniah's words in Matthew 28, 20, says that Jesus will be with his people always, even until the end of the earth. Whatever you struggle with this time of year, whatever you struggle with in your life, know that God is with you. And Because God is with you, he delights in you. He loves you. And he rejoices over you. And that truth demands, deserves a heartfelt amen. Let us pray. Our God and Father, remind us that God with us delights in us. Remind us that God with us loves us. And remind us that God with us rejoices over us so that we can rejoice in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In order to show his delight upon his people, God gave his people a blessing. And I leave that blessing with you today. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his loving countenance upon you and give you peace. We say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.